Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So as I said, we went into 2 Samuel chapter 1 last week. I'm not going to read chapter 1 again. We read it last week. You can go back and, and listen to the last message of the 1 Samuel message series if you want to hear chapter 1 taught on. But I'll give you a recap because it's important to kind of get oriented for where we are. In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, it's a continuation of 1 Samuel, and we find that David hears the news that Saul and his son Jonathan and his other two sons have been killed in a battle against the Philistines. That's where chapter one picks up in 2 Samuel. David is down in Ziklag with his family. He just comes back from a raid on the Amalekites to get his family back in order. His wife, his kids, the whole city had been burned and taken. He brings all of them back. And as soon as he gets back, a messenger arrives with news that Saul has been killed. And at the end of chapter one, we see that David's response is he creates a lament, it's a song, and he teaches that lament song to all of the Israelites. Everyone in his company, the over 500 people with him, he says, this is is the song we're gonna sing about Saul and his son. We're not gonna have gossip, we're not gonna sit around and talk about what he used to do, the whole thing with the spear and pinning to the wall, I don't wanna hear it anymore. This song is the way we're going to remember our days in the wilderness, and the king who is now dead. So we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and we have to, we're going to find out what David's going to do. So David is now currently in chapter 1, living in Ziklag with the Philistines. The king of Israel is now dead. He has been anointed as king over Israel. What is he going to do now? How is he going to step into that role? What's next? That's what we pick up. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. It says, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also with him, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and, where they were, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Just a quick pause before we read another two verses to finish it. The situation that's taking place there, after the Philistines killed Saul, they stripped him of his armor, they stripped him of his clothes, they cut his head off, and they pinned his body to the wall. Open shame. That night, the men of Jabesh Gilead snuck in when no one was looking, took the bodies off of the wall, brought them back to their hometown, and gave them a proper burial. This is what David is referencing, the kindness of the men of Jabesh Gilead. 
Verse six, now may the Lord show steadfast love and, and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be vigilant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So that's the message that he sent to Jabesh Gilead. Now, we've got a couple locations popping up. Let's go to a map to get some orientation for where we are today. We're gonna start off in the Middle East. We're gonna zoom in on that section there. And now some of these locations are starting to seem familiar from the story we just read. This isn't everything. There's other things we're gonna cover as we go into chapter three. But down here, we've got the Dead Sea, Mediterranean Sea over here. Uh, Hebron, this is where David has moved his family to. This is in Judah. Judah runs roughly about here. And then up into the north is kind of Israel. It's still a united kingdom, but now they don't really know who's the king yet. So David is king in Judah down here in the south. And we're about to find out that there's, uh, Saul was kind of king over Israel, but that his son, there is another son, he's about to be crowned king up here in the, uh, the top, and his kingdom is gonna be based up here in uh, Mahanaim. Now, uh, Gibeah was, uh, the, the, uh, Gibeon was the previous uh, hometown, that's where Saul ruled from, uh, but once the kingdom splits, now that David is king, and we're about to find out there's another king, there is kind of this sense that there is a Judah in the south and an Israel in the north. Now, when, king, when David becomes king over all of Israel, that will unite the nation again, and there will just be Israel. But Judah has always been the tribe with the largest amount of land, and therefore, they're always kind of considered as their own location, even though they're a part of the whole nation. Now, after Solomon's son dies, the kingdom does split, and there's two, there's, there's two kings. There's a king in the north over Israel, and there's a king in the south over Judah, and that takes place all the way up into the Babylonian captivity. But at this point, you've got Judah kind of down here, and then there's a, a kind of a rough Israel for about seven years up here. Mahanaim, this is where the king of Israel we're about to learn about is going to rule. David is ruling down here from Hebron. These two locations, Gibeah and Gibeon, they're going to be important, and also this place called Mount Amah. There's going to be, as we get into the end of two and beginning chapter of three, this competition among the leaders of the two kings. They're gonna get into a fight, and this is where that fight is gonna take place. Something bad is gonna go down at Mount Amah, but I wanted to just show you this map just so you can kind of get a sense for where these things are, all right? I'll post this online after the end of the service. So in chapter two, verses one through seven, we've got two things happening. David, he comes to the Lord and he says, all right, God, what do you want me to do now? And God explicitly says, I want you to move to Hebron. So the chapter starts with David praying, which is a good thing. David's not doing what is right in his own heart or what he thinks should be done at the moment. He's coming to the Lord and he's saying, God, what do you want me to do? I don't want to touch this thing. I don't want to, I don't want to like steal this throne. It it needs to be handed to me and you've got to hand it to me. I know I'm not going to come in and take this thing by force. So what do I do? And the Lord says, I want you to move to Hebron. And when he shows up in Hebron, the men of the city of Hebron, which is in Judah, they anoint him as king over Israel. Now this is fascinating because this is the second of three anointings that David has in his life. If you remember back to 1 Samuel, the first anointing that he had 
was under this guy named Samuel. You're probably familiar with this story. Samuel the prophet is told by God, go to this guy's house and anoint one of his sons as king. Well, he gets there and all of the sons are in the house except for young David. He's out watching the sheep. Well, eventually through the story, David gets called in and in front of his brothers and his family, he gets anointed as king. But here's the interesting thing about the timeline from that. From the point that David was anointed king by Samuel to this point where the men of Judah anoint David as their king, it was 15 years. 15 years from the point where God said, you're gonna be king over Israel to the point where it actually took place. And at this point of the story, it isn't actually even completely fulfilled. Because while he's king over Judah, he's not king over all of Israel. That won't take place for another seven years. So let's just do some quick math. The point that, G that God comes through the prophet Samuel to David and says, you are going to be king, to the point where that prophecy is actually fully fulfilled 22 years. So for those of you who have a problem waiting, Christianity isn't for you. If you struggle with things happening quickly because you get caught up in this culture and you, we, we as a people have gotten even to the place now where you can't even go back and watch network television because you have to sit through commercials. You will actually pay extra money to not have to watch Hulu commercials because you are so impatient. You can't sit through a six second YouTube commercial. This chapter speaking to you. It is there to remind us that God does not work on our timetable and he has no problem taking a long time to do things. But here's the thing, why God? Why do you take so long to do things? The Holy Spirit is saying, because you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. That is why I take so long to do things. I would be happy to do things overnight. But I am doing things in the midst of my people and my people are stubborn and stiff-necked. Here's some proof. That thing that you just felt like last week in a sermon that was just so revelatory, you heard it and you're like, man, that's, God just spoke to me. Like I, I heard the Lord speak, like that was, that's the Lord. And, like, and what he said, it's just kind of life-changing. Look, I promise you, 10 other people who love you dearly have been telling you that for the last 25 years. I know this because this happens to me regularly. I will hit this point where I'm like, oh, honey, you're never gonna believe what God showed me. And as I'm saying it, I can picture my wife saying that exact same thing to me 10 times over the last year. Why? Because we are a stubborn and a stiff-necked people because sin is so rooted in, and God is doing such a deep work to get it out, you have to be told numerous times. And sometimes the thing that you need to learn, you can't learn until these other nine things are learned first. I've used this illustration a, long, a, a lot. Like, I can't sit, my, my, my youngest son, he's 15, super smart kid, but I can't sit down and explain to him what PMI is on a home mortgage. It's pointless. He's not gonna use it, it's gonna go over his head. 
Some of you are like, what's PMI? <laughs> Mortgage insurance. It's what the bank uses in order to, to trust you that you're going to pay. It's, it's, it's insurance against you. And this idea that like there are things in our culture that we all agree you can't teach to a five-year-old or a 19-year-old because they're not going to learn. Why? Because they have to buy a house before they're going to learn it. You follow? There are, there are certain things that you have to do, seasons you have to walk through, a, a, a wilderness season you've got you've to persevere through, you've got to cultivate long-suffering in this specific season before this principle from God's Word will ever even make sense to you. That's why God takes so long. And he takes so long that sometimes it takes 22 years before the whole thing is fully realized. We're living in one of those periods now. David is a foreshadow of Christ, and Christ came, ro died, rose from the dead, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and is ruling over all of the nations. It's already, but it's also not yet. Because he is coming back to judge the nations and take his rightful seat here where we live and to raise the dead. It's this period of time. And if, and if God is comfortable giving the nations over 2,000 years to repent, there's not a scenario you're gonna bring to me and get sympathy because you feel like God is taking too long. That's what we're signing up for. His timetable, not ours. Now the other fascinating thing about this is the first thing that David does when he steps in to uh, his role as king over Judah. His first act as king is to honor the generosity of the men of Jabesh Gilead. He comes in and if the, first, the first message he sends as king, verse six, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. I will do good to you because you have done this thing for King Saul. Now what David is doing here is modeling what I would consider healthy relationship dynamics. What David is doing is he's saying, all right, I've been crowned as the king over Hebron, over Judah, and what I'm gonna do with that leadership is I'm gonna establish norms in God's kingdom, but I'm not gonna nail them to a wall and a list of rules and expect all of you, hey, here's the way we're gonna start doing things. You won't have to read off a list of the way we're going to do things. All you have to do is watch me. Because as the leader, I'm gonna model for you the norms that I want in this kingdom. And in modeling these norms, the expectation of the people who are a part of this kingdom is that they will follow the norms that the leader is modeling for everybody. Wow, what kind of king? Well, I don't know what kind of kingdom Saul had, but like what kind of kingdom is David gonna have? All you gotta do is watch him. Watch the way he treats people. That's how you're supposed to treat people. David isn't the kind of king who stands up here and says, I expect all of you to be a generous people but I, I will not be generous. I will be very selfish. Healthy leaders model for people what the norms should be in a group, and then the leader who's modeling those norms affirms and reinforces when those norms are acted out by the people in the group, 
through praise and through honor. That's what David's doing. He has said, and, and, and this is one of the ways, this is one of the reasons why he's king. When he came back from raiding the Amalekites, the first thing he did with the money was he sent a big chunk of it to the men of Judah and said, I just want to bless you guys. And now God tells him, I want you to move to Judah. And he comes in and those same guys who received that generous gift are coming in and responding in generosity. David, we want, we want you to be king. We're going to anoint you as king. And the first thing David does is he looks and he sends a message up to the men of Javish Gilead and he said, hey, I want you guys to know that I'm so, I'm so grateful for how generous you are. What you did for Saul, I'm now going to do for you now that I, what am I going to do with this crown they gave me? I'm going to use it to serve and bless you. What does that do in a group when the leader models the norms, the people follow the norms, and then the leader affirms and praises when the people align with the norms the leader is modeling? That solidifies the culture of those norms. Those norms now become more than just a list of rules that you wrote on the, on the wall, or they become more than even something that the, the leader is now modeling. Now it becomes the culture of the entire group. Now there is no list you can go to to see, well, what is this place like? What do you guys value? Hang out with three people in this group and you'll find out what we value. This principle it works at every level of everything. It works in a church, it works at work, and it really works at home. Dads, I'm about to give you the secret to it all. Are you ready? You want a home that loves Jesus? You want a wife that loves Christ? You want a home where, where, where your children aren't just constantly caught up in the, in the churning of drama. Here it is, you ready? Write this down. It starts with you. You, you, you're the leader of your home. And what you are responsible before the eyes of God to do is set the norms in your home. See, some of you are like, yeah, I know I'm the head of the, my home and like, I rule my home. Ah, see, you've already lost. You've, you've, uh, you've got it upside down. Jesus taught that leadership isn't like the world does it, where we lord power over one another. That responsibility God gave you to lead your home isn't so that you can have your way. It's so that you can model Christ for a group of people that will then leave your home and create another home and then model Christ to those people. That's the whole point of all of this. This is, you didn't get married to have your own throne. That's not what this is about. You got married in order to serve, to get on your knees to wash feet. And you're like, well, no one told me that. Here's how it works in the home. The, the father, the husband, he reads the word of God, sees what God sets are the norms and standards for what his people are supposed to be like, and then he starts modeling them. He starts walking in forgiveness. He starts biting his tongue. He doesn't go and make a, a, a list of 10 things that you're not allowed to do in this home. No, he just doesn't do those things 
And, and that modeling starts spreading throughout the family. And, and, and the moment somebody does something that is out of norm for what the head of the home is setting the standard, they look out of place. The encouragement that scripture gives us is that the leader sets the tone, models biblical truth, and then the people around him follow that truth. They, they can see the model example and they, they're happy to follow it because it's a good example to follow. So you don't have dad saying things like, hey, get off your phone while he's staring at his phone. If you want your kids to stop spending so much time on their phones, then put yours away. If it annoys you that at dinner your kids keep taking their phones out and texting their friends, stop doing that yourself. Stop getting up from the table and going to answer a work email. If you want a standard in your home, you have to model it first. And then that standard gets followed. And then what you do, the, the, the process isn't over. The next step in that is you start affirming and praising the following of that norm. And then once that happens, now this isn't, you can't do this in a manipulative sense. That, that robs the whole joy out of the whole process. The moment you start manipulating people with, with, with rewards in order to get them to do what they want to do, the whole, the whole process is shot. The point is, and uh, like a, um, an unwarranted or, or a spontaneous praise or honoring of someone going out of their way to follow what is modeled and good in the home. And when that happens, the child's like, oh, yes, finally. Dad, I, like I have dad's attention. Look, here's another one that's gonna blow your top. Do you know why most young people walk in rebellion? Is because they want attention. And they don't care where they get it from. Someone told me when my daughter was born many years ago, I had a son and then my little girl was born. This person pulled me aside and said, I'm gonna give you a little secret. Whatever amount of attention you think you need to give to your daughter, like just, like maybe you just think like this, whatever attention I give to my son, that's how much I give to my daughter, or, or however, whatever measure, whatever amount of attention you think you need to give your little girl. Multiply that times 10, and then you'll start getting there. Best advice I ever had. You've got daughters. If all you have is daughters, man, my heart goes out to you. That is a lot of attention. But God would not have given you all those daughters if you couldn't handle it. So you're in a very, very special group of believers, man. There's going to be so many crowns on your head when we get to heaven. It's like, man, what did you do on earth? I raised five girls. God, man, you are something, sir. The, the point is that... What David is doing in the land, the first thing he does with the crown is he models the kind of behavior he wants to see out of the people around him. And if you want to change your home, if you want to change the church, that's where it starts. It always starts with the head. It always starts with the leader. You can't make a list of rules of the way Red Hills Church is going to be, and everyone's going to be like, well, I'm good at one, two, three, and I could kind of toss out four and five, six and seven. No, there is no list of rules. 
There is only a culture of things that we value and we think are important. And if you hang out with anybody who's been here for any length of time, you're going to start picking up on those little cues. And I don't have to sit here and reinforce them. All you have to do is watch what we think is important, and you'll see other people start thinking that is important. That's the way a culture is solidified. Leaders can't walk around acting one way and expecting their organization or their family or the church to, to, to live a different way. You have to model what you want to see, and that's what we see David doing. So let's go into verse 8. So there's this guy named Abner. Abner is the king, or not the king, he's the commander of uh, the previous king, Saul, his army. So you've got David, he's the king over uh, Judah, and his military commander is a guy named Joab, and then you've got this other king who was Saul, and his military commander is Abner. So this is where we pick up the story, verse eight. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So those are all northern tribes and cities. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Let's just pause there for a moment because we've got a plot twist. At the end of 1 Samuel, Saul died and three of his sons who were with him in battle died and we thought that was the end of Saul. That's the end of his family line. And now we find out he's got another son. It's this 40-year-old guy who apparently doesn't go into war. I guess maybe he sits at home and plays video games. He's He's the last of Saul's line and he is told by Abner, hey, you're now king. Now there's something interesting about this. Because this throne, who did it belong to? Yahweh. See, through, through our normal like, mental capacities, like, okay, I understand how kings work. When the, when the father dies, the son takes over. And if these three are out, then who's the next in line? Well, that is how it works if the throne belongs to Saul, but it doesn't belong to Saul. The throne belongs to Yahweh, and Yahweh chooses who sits on that throne. And God has already chosen who sits on that throne. It's a young man named David. And so this throne wasn't Abner's to give away. And you think, well, that's kind of unfair for Ishbosheth. He he should be king, right? His, His dad died, that's how things work. Well, it wasn't Ishbosheth's throne either. This is God's throne and he does with it what he sees fit. So this act is going to let loose an act of rebellion and violence that's gonna carry over multiple chapters. Rather than David stepping into his rightful role, there's now an usurper king, a fraudulent king ruling in the north on the throne that belongs to David. Let's pick it in verse 12. So this is what happens after that crowning. So Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, so he, that's the head of David's army, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. 
And they all sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Can you, can you just picture what's about to happen here? You've got two armies and each one thinks they're serving the rightful king and they're hanging out by the pool. Abner says to Joab, verse 14, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab says, bet. That's for all of you under 15. <laughs> Joab says, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin, for Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. So you got 24 guys battling out by the pool. Each caught his opponent by the head. So each dude, they locked each other. One guy grabs the other by the hair. The other guy grabs the other by the hair. And they thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place is called Helkath Hazarim, or the field of the sword's edges, which is at Gibeon. So these dudes get together and like, all right, let's fight. And as soon as they fight, they pull out a sword in their right hand, they grab the head of the opposite side, and while the other guy, he stabs this way and the other guy stabs this way, and at the same time, all 24 guys kill each other, and they all just fall dead. This competition erupts into violence. Verse 17, the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So David's army, I mean, they're battle-hardened, and they're whipping up on some uh, men from Saul's army. And three sons, Zeruiah was there, Joab, Abishai, and Azael. Now, Azael was swift of foot as a wild gazelle. This dude was super fast. And Aziel started pursuing Abner. Now here's a fun fact. These three boys, Joab, Abishai, and Aziel, they're brothers, and they are nephews of David. David's sister had these three boys, and these three boys fought in David's army. And the last one, the youngest, he was fast. And he started chasing the commander of Ishbosheth's army. And so now they're in a foot race. And Azael pursued Abner as he went, and he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him as they're just hoofing it. He looks behind him and says, is that you, Azael? And he says, it is I. <laughs> and they just keep going. <laughs> and Abner turns again. He says, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. So essentially, you better stop chasing me. Go chase somebody else. But Aziel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner again said one more time to Aziel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But Aziel was proud. He didn't stop. He refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Aziel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai 
pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gi'ah on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and, uh, and, and become one group and took their stand at the top of the hill. So there's this little mountain and Abner and all of his men are at the top of the mountain and Joab and all of his men are at the bottom of the mountain and Abner, verse 26, calls out, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be? You tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers. And Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. You're right, this is gonna end bitter. And had you not said that, and I'd not come to my senses, anger would have overtaken me, and you'd be dead by the end of the day. So Joab, verse 28, blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all night through the uh, uh, Arabah, and they crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning, they came back to Mahanaim, so they went home. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Aziah. But when the servants of David had struck down all of Benjamin, there were 360 of Abner's men dead. Those are pretty impressive odds. And when they took up Aziel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem, Job and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So Abner is now crowned this imposter king, and the first thing that these armies want to do with these two kings is they want to fight it out. And the fighting turns, this competition, uh, turns into a, a battle with tons of bloodshed. Now as you're reading through this, if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm like, Lord, where are you in this? Where's God in this? He's not mentioned in here. What, what is going on here? What is the point of this story being in here? Well, there's two points. First, as we get into chapter three in just a moment, you're gonna see that there is a tension between Abner and Joab. And unless you know the backstory of Abner killing Joab's brother, you won't understand what's gonna happen in the next chapter and why Joab wants him dead. And that's not gonna make sense when we get to the end of the book when David pronounces judgment on Joab for being a man of anger and war and not being able to control his temper. So, Number one, the author wants us to know the backstory of why Joab is the way he is and why David treats him the way he does. But there's another component to this. This story reads like a parable. Jesus taught in parables. He'd give us these stories and behind the story had this meaning. So what is the meaning behind this story? The meaning behind this story is found in verse 26. When Abner says, shall the sword devour forever? because the end is going to be bitter. Now it's ironic that the person saying this is the person who started all of this. It, but isn't that kind of how it always is? The person who starts the fight, is, he, he gets his licks in and then he wants to stop the fight? That's the reason why this is in here. Because this story serves as a parable to remind us that vengeance or revenge it has a very large appetite. 
And for those of us in here who live their lives on that cycle of revenge, getting even, having the last word, and I'm not just talking about war, I'm talking about the little skirmishes you get into with your in-laws or maybe the people at work or your spouse, it always seems like you're the one who has to have the last word. And every conversation somehow turns into an argument. You say something, somebody says something else that's a little bit different, and then you feel the need to just correct them because you perceive that what they said about you wasn't correct. There is no end to that. This story serving as a proverb reminds me of another proverb, Proverbs 30, 15, and 16. It says this, it says, and this is one of those ones when you're doing like the Bible reading plan, you're at day 30 and just like, I'm just gonna read through, this doesn't make any sense, but it's so important for this passage. This proverb sheds light on what's happening in this section. Proverbs 30, 15 through 16 says, the leech has two daughters and their names are give and give. The leech never has enough. There are, this is verse 16, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. What are the four things that never say enough? First, Sheol, the land of the dead. It never has enough. It always wants more dead. What else never says enough? The barren womb. Every woman in in the entire Bible who had a barren womb was not satisfied with what God had given her and cried out to God, please give me a child. The barren womb never says enough. The land never is satisfied with water. Doesn't matter how much it rains, just seeps in and it'll just take in more and more and more. And the other thing that never says enough is fire. It never stops consuming. Once it starts, it will consume and consume and consume. It'll never stop. And Abner, in verse, was this 26, says, I'll add something to the list. Here's something that never says enough. Revenge. Your desire to get even is never, here's the reason why it's never enough. Because if you imagine your quarrel with whoever you're picturing, and this is the way the Holy Spirit works, the moment you start talking about this, all of a sudden that person picks, you picture in your mind, you're like, yeah, that's the guy. (sighs) I'm gonna get him. I'm gonna put him in his place in front of everybody so everyone sees what a fool he is. I want you to picture that person, I want you to picture scales. Every time you perceive that those scales are out of balance in the other person's favor and you want revenge and you put a little stone on that side, it never weighs the balance. It always weighs it in your favor. And what happens is now the balance is tipped towards your favor and that person is in the position you were just in and now they want revenge. So they put a stone on their side and now it's out of balance again and now you want revenge. Revenge is one of those things that says there is never enough. You always want more. And what the author is trying to portray for us in the context of this one person who's over here on God's team and leading God's army and this other guy who's on the perceived other team, we'll just say like non-believer stuff. We've got people who are with God's team and we've got people who are not with God's team. In that dynamic, you always feel this desire to want to even the scales. Because inside of us, there's this sense that like, well, well, I want to do it for God. I, I don't want God's name to be blasphemy. You don't care anything about God. You don't want 
the scales to continue to be in balance. You want revenge. This isn't about the Lord. Stop lying about it. This is about you wanting to get even. This is about you wanting to have the last word. And this story is in here to remind us that that's no way to live. The end of that is bitterness. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no rest for the man of woman or, or woman. Man of woman, that's funny. The man or woman who spends their life trying to get even or have the last word. Now, as we get into chapter three, I wanna take verses one through 11 and just summarize them for you quickly. Um, David uh, uh, and this war between David and Ishbosheth, they, they, they kind of just, it doesn't go anywhere. It goes south, it gets worse. Ishbosheth's army gets worse. David's army gets stronger. David has more children. Uh, but there's this split that happens between Abner and Ebosheth. The king, Ebosheth, he comes to this place where he's starting to get jealous of Abner. But why is that? Well, because Abner is the one who put him on the throne. And it wasn't his throne to give away, but Abner was, was acting like it was his throne to give away. And then there's this accusation that Ishbosheth gives towards Abner that Abner is actually having relationships with some of Saul's old girlfriends. And the king is like, hey, uh, there's a word on the street that you want this throne, and Abner, Abner loses it. He says, after all I've done for this family, that's how you're gonna accuse me? Like, that's how you're gonna treat me? Like, you're gonna accuse me of wanting to take the throne? I mean, secretly, I think he did want the throne, but he throws this big fit, and what he does in return is he looks at Ishbosheth and he says, because you have disrespected me this way, I'm gonna hand the kingdom over to David. And Abner goes and seeks an audience with David. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel. And he said, good. This is what David said. I will make you a covenant. I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that, that is that you not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Now, this was David's first wife, but when he ran from Saul, Saul gave his daughter over to another man. David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife back for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping all, excuse me, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. And then Abner said to him, go home, and he returned. It's kind of a sad story. This, this guy was given Saul's daughter in marriage, but it really wasn't Saul's daughter to give. Saul had already given his daughter over. And so this man was technically in adulterous relationship with this woman, and it's time to set things right, and you have to end the adulterous relationship, and sometimes hearts get broken. But the king says, go home, and so the guy went home. Verse 17, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as your king. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from the hands of their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron, all the Israel, and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to, uh, thought good to do it. And Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go, uh, go uh, excuse me, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king. 
that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart's desires. And so David sent Abner away and went to his own peace. Now, what's happening here is Abner has now come down, they've parlayed with David, and David is demonstrating forgiveness. See, Abner killed Azael in the last chapter. Aziel was David's nephew. But David wanted what the Lord wanted more than what David wanted. And so when presented with a man who is coming to him saying, I am going to turn my back on the king I have been serving in order to serve you as king, and I'm also gonna bring the rest of Israel with me, David says, I want what the Lord wants, which is me as king. So you have to ask yourself this question, is David being opportunistic? Is he trying to maneuver? No, he's using the gifts that God has given him in diplomacy, very diplomatic person, very good in communication, but he was using all of those gifts in order to achieve what God wanted, which was him on the throne. So he's leading with forgiveness, he's demonstrating kindness. He's modeling for us the kind of kingdom he wants. He wants people in his kingdom to be walking in forgiveness. This is a foreshadow of non-believers in the New Testament that are coming to Jesus and saying, I'm turning my back on the old king and I want you. This is a good picture. This isn't just people manipulating each other. This is Abner turning to David and saying, I wanna serve you now. And David is affirming this and saying, all right, so this picture is beautiful. It's, it's, this is a picture of a person turning to a new king. This should be good, but there's one man in David's army who's holding a grudge. Let's finish this, verse 22. This is just then the servants of David arrived with Joab. They were on a raid, bringing in much spoil with them, and Abner was not with David at Hebron. So he doesn't know what was going on. Verse 23, Joab and all the, ar- excuse me, all the army that was with him came. And it was told Joab, hey, um, Abner, the son of Ner, he came to the king. And the king has let him go. And he has left here and gone in peace. So Joab stomped up to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? Don't you know he owes me a debt? Don't you know I want revenge? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and, and to know you're going and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. He isn't gonna be faithful to you. And when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah and David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Aziel, his brother. Why the stomach? Because that's where Abner stabbed his brother in the stomach. This is revenge killing. There's no justice to this, it's revenge. And afterward, when David heard of this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house and may the, may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. That's tough. David spoke a curse over Joab, his nephew. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Azael to death in battle at Gibeon. And the way the chapter ends, 
David goes to the funeral of Abner and he mourns out loud and everyone watches and their response is, man, I respect that kind of man. What kind of man? The kind of man who walks in forgiveness and doesn't seek revenge. What do people want more than anything? A leader who models the morals that we all say we're supposed to be following. Not someone who stands up there and says, y'all should be doing this, all the while doing something else behind the curtains. No one respects a man like that. No one respects a man that can't control his own temper. No one respects a man who has to have the last word, who always has to have the best story, who walks over his children publicly, who puts his wife in her place publicly. No one respects a man like that. No one respects a leader who treats their, their workers or their family like garbage, like they are there to serve him. Nobody respects a person like that. Who, does, who do the people respect? They respect a person who weeps and wails, who walks and models and lives forgiveness, who is ready to let someone off the hook even when that person has done something personal to their own family. Why? Because all of us as Christians are supposed to be modeling a better kingdom than the one we currently live in. And that kingdom, that's the way Christ does things. He walks in forgiveness. He washes feet. He lets people off the hook. He lets people who have been at war with him and have served another king lay down their arms and come and surrender to him. That's the kind of king we serve. That's what he's modeling for us and that's what we're supposed to be modeling for somebody else. Now when we started this series on 1 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Samuel was fascinating because it was filled with all these names. Do you remember? 1 Samuel chapter one, Elkanah, Peninnah, Hannah, Samuel, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, remember all that? Well, here we are at the very beginning of 2 Samuel and we're flooded with a bunch of names again. It's not just a story of what God's doing, it's a story of what God's doing in his people. There's David, there's Ishbosheth, there's Abner, there's Joab, there's Abishai, there's Azael, there's Machael, there, there's, there's her uh, ex-husband. This story is surrounded by people's names and what the author is trying to get us to understand is that God is at work in the midst of his people, but he isn't only at work in the midst of his people. He is at work in the midst of non-believers too. And this is how we're closing. The idea that the more we read scripture, the more we see ourselves in God's story, the more we see, we, we read this, I mean, like, I, like oh man, am I, am I a leader like David or am I a leader like Joab? Am I a kind of man who can't control my temper and always walks around with this anger and people can't tell what they're gonna get from me? Or am I the kind of person who walks in forgiveness and is walking in calm and is diplomatic and is willing to let someone who has been my enemy come and be my friend? That's all it, that's all in God's family. We're all wrestling with that kind of, what kind of leader am I? What is God doing in the midst of his family? But while we read this, we have to remember that God isn't only working in our family. There are names in here that are outside of David's kingdom and God is working in those lives too. Abner is a perfect example of that. So as we close, here's what I want on your mind. 
the reality that God is absolutely right now working in your heart and in your family's heart and in this church and in, and in the church globally. He is doing that. He is working in the midst of his people, but he isn't only working in the midst of his people. He doesn't only care about this church. He cares about the nations. Remember when he sent a prophet to Nineveh? He told Jonah, I want you to go to preach in Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I, I don't want to do that. Why didn't Jonah want to do that? It wasn't because Jonah was afraid of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to do it because he knew that God was a kind God. And if he preached to Nineveh, they might repent and he might have to forgive them. He knew God would forgive them, but Jonah would have to forgive them. And there are people here in this room that are hearing this message right now. You have something against someone, either in the family or out there, non-believers, and you don't like the idea that they might hear the good news of Jesus, turn from their sins and be forgiven, and you have to call them brother. You got no choice. You got to get over it. You gotta let that go. That's another thing you gotta bury, nail to the cross, walk away from. Because God is working in the midst of his people, but he is also working in that corrupt and wicked society called Babylon, and he is, he is a messenger on the hill shouting, Babylon has been thrown down. The whore of Babylon has been thrown down. Babylon has been destroyed. Destruction is coming. Come out from that city. And some of those people who are coming out from that city are gonna end up here on Sunday morning. And you're gonna to have to be okay with it. Because God is working in his people, but he's also working out there in that lost world. And he wants us in the middle of it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.